On a 2-1, Alvarez hits a high drive center field. Veerling's back. This game is turned upside down. Titanic drive for the ages over the batter's eye in center field. And Jordan Alvarez has given the Astros a 3-1 lead in the sixth inning. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Men from lesser states may know their state's capital, but you, you know your state's bird, tree, and even reptile. Love that horny toad. You display your pride with your Lone Star tattoo, native Texan bumper sticker, and contempt for any state that doesn't start with Tex and end with Is. That spells Texas. Sure, there are 49 other states in the Union, but they're smaller, wussier, and the people talk funny. Yankee wussies. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, oh lover of the Lone Star State. Because all that flag waving must have made you mighty thirsty. Mr. Wade, you gotta Bud Light beer out of Central Houston, Texas. A can of Old Bay. A dock worker from Locust Point. A doctor from Sinai. A hairdresser from Patterson Park. And a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk, and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. There goes the runner. Fly ball down the right field line. Tucker comes on. Kyle Tucker. This time they finish the job. The Houston Astros world champions. Robinson Gearing Studio Complex. 
Straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. I never move a slow mo. Welcome to my dojo. Those other pods are so so. I'm chill like pro yo. Focus like a GoPro. Ripping up this promo. Check out the scoreboard. Bring some going. No one knows it's going. It's going. It's going. Yo, it's gone. Your heart just stopped. Cause Jake got strong and mighty. Undefeated. I mean it. Pull up the pods. Pull it down and read it. Written, produced, directed, and mixed. Dog on your lips and Ozzy Smith back lips. Pick a tip, any tip, get on to it. I got ridiculous pods without forcing it. You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little cut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap back, but this ain't no act jack. My hobbies are rhyme, some people try to be black, but that about time I come out and call this show BKP and let me turn it out. Yo, name Jake the Snake, born in 71. Day you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory, and that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kagalagi, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's Gucci? Welcome back into the dojo this week for yet another chapter of the baseball podcast spanning the globe. BKP with the facial. A communal place where all of us like-minded baseball freaks come together every week. And make these archaeological deep digs into 250 years of baseball history that have been woven and stitched into the fabric of our American culture and ultimately the world. As the American pastime is slowly but surely becoming a global phenomenon as evidenced by the fact that the richest team sport athlete in the world plays baseball in America, freaks, and he hails from Japan. And we'll bring to board our BKP time travel choo-choo if you like As we are primed to depart soon for Houston, Texas Union Station For this week's topic But before we do this Let's take a look at some of the major player movements That took place throughout the week since the last time I spoke to you Hello everybody, it's your boy Jake the Snake Robinson, I got your hookup, holler if you hear me, this is Backwards K-Pod, show 118, week 13 of the 2023 MLB offseason, and this is the BKP Hot Stone Report, sponsored by Laparose Crawfish Hand Cleaner, no more smelly hands, as I'm not sure about your team, but my Orioles will see catchers and pitchers report to beautiful Sarasota, Florida in about 14 days to get this 2024 season rolling. And with that in mind, there are still quite a few ballplayers left on the free agent market yet to be signed. 
And there was a flurry of action this week, but none of the bigger names like Clay Snell, Cody Bellinger, or Matt Chapman have yet to ink a deal, as it appears that uh, super agent Scott Boris is having a harder than usual time finding a sucker for these exorbitant contract demands, but he'll continue to grind it out and let the market play out. It, it, it just, it's just what he does. It's why his clients are among the best-played players in the sport. So I'll brush by some of these quickly so we can get to this week's topic, but before I do... So, for the past almost year, I've been telling you all about my Navy shipmate from back in the day, James Laparos, and his amazing crawfish hand cleaner, and I'm so proud of my mate here. In the past year, he has developed and successfully marketed hand soaps and wipes that are quite simply out of this freaking world. In the past year, he has developed a formula for spicy hands after crawfish boils and steamed crabs. He has the fishing bait hand cleaner for all of you ladies and germs who like to spend their days on a riverbank or on a boat somewhere fishing and listening to BKP. And he has the Buffalo Wings hand wipes and soaps. And that shit is amazing, folks. It's not just some horseshit soap that masks odors. It's crazy how the stuff just totally eliminates the smells that go along with eating shellfish, fishing bait, and buffalo wings. And not only does it eliminate, it absolutely destroys all traces of spice on your hands as well. Well, my boy is back at it as he has developed Laparo's Cajun Sauce. And when we were at boot camp, Lap used to always talk about all the great Cajun foods he grew up eating. And now he's literally bringing his passion for Cajun cuisine to the world. And you gotta get some of this, folks. It's ridiculous how awesome it is. His Cajun sauce is an old family recipe straight from the bayou to your home. It's great on seafood, fries, burgers, chickens, wings. Pretty much everything you nerds would like. I only advertise products I use. I'm not just hawking stuff to get paid. If you enjoy Cajun flavors, you gotta try the stuff. It's born in Louisiana, and it's made in Houston, Texas. Call 713-588-0290, or make your orders at crawfishhandcleaner.com. And speaking of Houston, which is kind of becoming a theme for this week's show, the Astros, who have blasted out the back end of their bully by obtaining... Josh Hader to join Presley the Braille on that back end. They still want to do it in bully as the Cubs have plucked Hector Neris from the Strohs, signed him to a one-year $9 million deal with an option for 2025, which can pay the right-hander a little more than $11 million. And at this point of the hot stone season, Neris is the best reliever available, posting a 1.71 ERA last year and 68 and a third innings pitched for Houston. And he's got that tough, nasty splitter as his out pitch. And the Cubs have virtually gone from Michael Fulmer and Brad Boxberger to Yancy Almonte and Hector Neris, which for me is a significant upgrade. The Cubs, who are projected to have three softballs in their rotation this year, have yet to find a stable left-handed pitcher for their bully. And there ain't much on the market to choose from Scotty Alexander, Brad Hand, maybe. Thankfully, Neris is tough on left-handers, so that should help a little. And this gives the Cubs a potent plethora of options in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings between Hector, 
Naris, Julian Merriweather, and Adbert Alzalei. And they also brought back Carl Edward Jr. on a minor league deal. And I think the Cubs' bullpen is a total upgrade over last year. Full of competition between about 12 pitchers. I think Michael Mark Leiter Jr. may be a little vulnerable. If he doesn't crush it in spring training, he may be the odd man out this year. I personally hate to see that. And I love that kid. The truth is, unless they go get a southpaw or two, the Cubs may be close to done with their bullpen work, which should leave them plenty of time to compete with themselves for the services of Cody Bellinger. <laughs> In other news, the Rangers have signed late inning specialist, bullpen guy David Robertson, who pitched really well for the Mets last year before he was shipped to Miami, where he was good, but not as stellar as he was in Queens. Still, though, Robertson has had an exceptional 16-year career. So I was looking at his career stats after the deal. I mean, it's pretty amazing how consistent that guy's been. And he's been pitching for a long time. He, he won a World Series with the Yankees. So that's how long that dude's been around. He has that nasty cutter. He throws a slider, a four-seam fastball. And he's joining Kirby Yates, whom the Rangers signed last month, and that revamped Texas bully that desperately needed work. The Rangers are hoping that what they got out of Josh Spores and closer Jose LeCurk in the post is a line where those two are going to be going, even though they both were not very good during the regular season last year. Robinson is a vet with closing experience. Should LeClerc falter like he did in the beginning of last year when he lost his closer role before eventually earning it back? And let's not forget that Yates, Kirby Yates, he's got closing experience as well. Last year, Robinson finished with a 3.03 ERA, 18 saves, with 78 strikeouts and 65 and third innings pitched. The bully looks worlds better with LeClerc. LeClerc, Yates, Sports, Robertson, and Brock Burke. They also have Carson Coleman, who they stole from the Yankees in a Rule 5 draft. South Paul prospect Antoine Kelly waiting in the wings. So, it looks like the world champions are trying to fortify a bully that was horrendous last year. With just a beast, decent bullpen in August, this should have been a 100-win team last year. They also bring back role player Travis Janikowski on a one-year deal for $1.75 million. And let's see, what else do we have here? It really was a flurry of move last week. Some moving the needle more than others, but nothing really earth-shattering. The Brewers signed power-hitting first baseman Reese Hoskins. Cookie Carrasco is headed back to Cleveland. Adam Frazier signs a one-year deal with Kansas City. 33-year-old Alex Wood. And, and look... I don't know why, but it seems like Alex Wood has been around forever. He's only 33. He signed with the Oakland A's on the Las, Las Vegas Salt Lake A's. <laughs> I mean, that seems a mess. Adam Montevito declines a $7 million app option at the end of the year and returns to the Mets for $4.5 million. Aaron Hicks signs with the Angels, and the Yankees are still paying for it. He had a terrible start of the season in the Bronx last year, but... Resurrected his season once the Orioles picked him up. 65 games for the O's. He hit seven doubles, seven home runs, six stolen bases, 275 BA, 381 OBP, and a 127 OBP plus. And my thought is with Mickey Moniak 
who played very well in 85 games last year, primarily in center field. I think he and Hicks will form a platoon this year. Moniac struggles versus Southpaws, but he crushes right-handed pitching, batting 294 versus them with a 133 OPS plus in those games. Uh, he only had seven walks to 92 strikeouts, so he needs to get better there. Meanwhile, Hicks batted 350 versus Southpaws last year with a 163 OPS plus. Jerry Depoto makes another deal as he trades a player to be named later or some cash to the Kansas City Royals for Samad Taylor from the Royals, who were basically roster-crunching after signing Adam Frazier to that deal. And January 31st, 2024, will go down in Orioles history as one of the greatest days ever when it was reported that the Angeles family has finally sold the club. Free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, the Orioles are free at last. It's been reported that the Baltimore Orioles are being sold to David Rubenstein and Mike Orgetti for $1.72 billion with a B. I believe that, you know, Jerry uh, Angelos, uh, Peter Angelos bought the team for $175 million when he bought it. So $1.72 billion is a pretty good return there. Now, it has not been confirmed yet, but the story has been attached to some of the more credible writers in town that I definitely trust. But look, there's still like 1% of me that doesn't believe this is going to happen. And that's only because the Angels family and John in particular, well, you know, they're big fat liars. They are snakes who are not to be trusted, but... All indications are pointing to this as being a reality. The two new buyers have formed a consortium consisting of powerful Baltimore at and at athletes and celebrities like Calvin Jr., Michael Phelps, rock star Joan Jett, among others. Now, Rubenstein and Orgetti are private equity billionaires, and Rubenstein is the founder of the Carlisle Group. And Rubenstein becomes the control guy, owning 40% of the shares. He will get Peter's Angelos. Uh, he'll get Peter's share as soon as he dies. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say. The owners have a meeting next month, and I can assume this will be a topic of discussion. And at some point, they're gonna put this to a vote. Now, I wouldn't worry too much about that, O's fans, if the owners don't give a shit enough to bounce Oakland A's owner Steve Fisher on his ass, then it stands to reason that the owners, they don't really care about who the owners are, as long as you're rich and kind of cool to hang out with and be elite. I've had people reach out to me with the valid concern that the two owners are in private equity, which basically takes rich corporations down and sells off their parts. I mean... That's what they do, and the concern is about. But can it possibly get any fucking worse than it's been for the past 31 years? I mean, really. I'm going to remain positive. I don't think that this is the case where that's what they're going to do as far as, you know, buy this corporation and rip it down. Rubenstein is Baltimore born and raised. He grew up loving the Orioles. He gave his, up his position in the Carlisle group months ago, and he's become like this philanthropist donating money to great causes in the world. In his 70s, he appears to be all in on bringing the Orioles back to respectability. I'm going to warily trust him only because, well, I know what the Angeloses are all about. They can't possibly be fucking worse than that. 
And I'll have more on this story as it develops. And I'm hearing a lot of noise about what the Orioles should do with their new unconfirmed riches. And, you know, pump the brakes, kid. It doesn't work that way. And it does kind of explain why the Orioles have done nothing this offseason besides sign Kimbrell to close. It's going to take a few months to get this all together. So I don't expect them to go out and sign Blake Snell tomorrow, which, good. I don't want that albatross around our neck five years from now. When everything is finalized, I'd like to see the team invest in our own. The Adley Rockstars, Gunnar Hendersons, Grayson Rodriguez's, Jackson Holliday's, Cedric Mullins, etc., etc. I don't expect the Orioles to do much more in this hot snow season, but 2025 should be an exciting offseason full of possibilities. And it's going to be on Birdland, so play ball. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is this week's BKP Hot Stove Report, sponsored by Laparose Hand Cleaners. No more smelly hands. So, with this week's BKP Hot Stove Report in the books with a backwards K next to it, that's my cue to get the last remaining stragglers aboard our trusty BKP time travel choo-choo. Clear this platform here at Terrapin Station. As I look to the west of Terrapin, I see our beautifully manicured ball field. I can smell the Kentucky bluegrass fragrances wafting off the field. All the smiling fans in the stands. This is my home. These are my people. The pitcher has completed his warm-up tosses. The catcher has thrown an absolute seed down to second base. The infield is flipping that ball around with snap and swagger. The umpires call play ball. So I'm going to call it. And I'm going to call... All aboard, as we will be setting the destination for Houston, Texas this week, with no destination time, just a straight trip through space bending wormholes, as we, this week, we'll be talking about a real engineering marvel of a baseball cathedral, Minute Maid Park, home of the Houston Astros. Now the 16th oldest baseball stadium in the majors. And I've covered all of them up to this point. Except, you know, the mausoleum in Alameda County in Oakland. And that shitbox, the Trop in Tampa, St. Pete. For obvious reasons. But you can find the history of all these ballparks. From Fenway up to T-Mobile Park in Seattle. Up to this point in our catalog of archive shows. As we are now going into our third year of learning the history of all the current cribs, hopefully the A's have raised by a better status by the time we get to the end, as well as many throwback cribs like the Polo Grounds, Forbes Field, Kaminsky Park, just to name a few. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, get in where you fit in, take off your shoes, open your kimonos, ladies, rip those bras off, throw them out the window. Let the girls hang, get comfortable, we don't judge here. And as we pull away from Terrapin and build up the necessary quantum speed needed to bend space and route to Minute Maid Park, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of Major League Stadiums in Houston. Like the talking head so eloquently put it over 40 years ago in song. Well, how did I get here? Assemble. The Astros organization has played in three stadiums in their going on 62 years of club history. Their first stadium was Colt Stadium, 
a one-tier open-air grass field that was considered way too hot. Their second home, the eighth wonder of the world, was the famous Astrodome, a multi-purpose dome crib that was considered too dark and gave us AstroTurf, for crying out loud. And the third stadium, the retractable roof, natural grass, all-inspiring Minute Maid Park, or the Juice Box, as she is affectionately called. And I'll be discussing that in just a bit. Now, let's start here with Colt Stadium. Colt Stadium was built for $2 million, hosted the MLB Houston Colt 45's baseball team for three seasons, from 1962 to 1964, before they adopted the Astros' nickname. So $2 million in 1962 is worth around $20.3 million today in the 2024 economy. It seated around 33,000 people who must have felt like a fried egg in the oppressive Houston heat while mosquitoes the size of baseballs would attack the players and the fans. The symmetrical stadium favorite pitchers as the foul poles sat 360 feet down the line or 110 meters, 395 feet in the power alleys, 120 meters, center field was 420 or 128 meters away from home plate. And check this out, nerds. It's a little no bet, but Colt Stadium is the only ballpark to be used as a minor league ballpark, as well as the host of three professional teams in two different countries. Huh? Say what? That's right. Here's what happened. It was always considered a temporary stadium from the outset, but... When the Astrodome was completed for the 1965 season, it was used sparingly as a running and exercise facility by the ball club. Although the players and coaches had to constantly keep their heads on a swivel as the field became a nesting ground for rattlesnakes. Monsanto engineers also used it as a proving ground to test their synthetic chemgrass they called AstroTurf by having cars and horses riding on the new services to test its durability. By the early 1970s, the crib had become nothing more than a tax liability money pit. And it had a lien on it. In 1971, she assaulted the owners of the Algodoneros del Union Laguna from the Mexican League. And over the next four years, she was slowly dismantled and shipped in pieces to Torreon, Coahuila, Mexico, for use as the home stadium. And it was renamed Estadio Superior in a naming rights agreement with a Mexican brewery. Now, Union Laguna would house their baseball team there from 1975 to 1981. In time, the stadium was affectionately called Million de Tuercas, which means a million screws because of her ability to assemble and reassemble and because of her resemblance to an erector set. In 1981, the owner of Union Laguna, Juan Rios, became embroiled in a bitter feud with the governor of Coahuila, Jose de la Fuentes, and the two had a falling out. Rios would sell the club to the Union of Oil Workers of the Mexican Republic, who literally moved the team and the stadium to Tampico, Tamaulipas. While the stadium was being disassembled and shipped off to Tampico in 1982, 
the franchise played their games in Moncova, Coila, and rebranded themselves as the Astros de Monclova. In 1983, with the stadium completely reassembled in their new home, they again rebranded the team name, this time to Astros de Tapolinas, and the stadium was now called Estadio Angel Castro. The franchise would again relocate in 1985. This time, though, they would not take the stadium with them. The Mexican Tigers bought the stadium with the intent of relocating the well-traveled crib to Mexico City. But the venue began showing significant structural weakness after the years of humidity that it endured in Tampico. And those plans would be trashed. Ultimately, some rows of seats were reassembled at a stadium in Pasteje, Yoko de Leon. Leon, But the rest stayed behind in Tampico until it was demolished. Now, the next stadium in the club's history is the never-forgotten Astrodome. And even though at the Astrodome it didn't age well, she was a modern marvel ahead of her time on the cutting edge of stadium design with brand new technological features that are everyday accommodations in indoor ball yards today, including air conditioning and AstroTurf. The stadium was home to the Strohs from 1965 to 1999. It opened with a seating capacity of 42K, and by the time it closed down, it expanded to over 54,000 seats for baseball, and it would easily hold over 70,000 spectators for the Houston Oilers NFL football team. Now, like Colt Stadium, the the Astrodome played... As a pitcher's park, it measured 340 feet down the line. That's 104 meters, 375 feet in right and left center field power alleys, which is 114 meters, and center field was 406 feet away from the dish, or 124 meters. By the time the Astrodome closed up shop, it played more neutral with a slight advantage to hitters because of the air-conditioned climate as the foul line shrunk from 340 feet to 325 feet, 99 meters, in the power alleys. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The power alley stayed maxed out at 375 feet, but center field shrunk from 406 feet to 400 feet, or 122 meters. The dome itself was somewhere 110 feet, or 220 meters in diameter. It crowned the structure 208 feet, 63 meters above the plank surface, which itself sat 25 feet or 7.6 meters below street level. So the lower concourse and seating bowl were well below the street, and it was basically like this huge hole in the ground rising into the sky. The dome was completed in November of 1964, six months ahead of schedule. Many engineering changes were required during her construction, including modest, a modest flattening out of the proposed hemispheric route to cope with the environmentally induced structural deformation, and the use of a new paving process called lime stabilization to cope with changes in the chemistry of the soil. To test what the effect of an enclosed air-conditioned structure would have on pitch balls, 
The club had none other than Satchel Page himself come in on February 7, 1965 to throw the first pitches ever in the history of the Dome Spectacle. It was Page's determination afterwards that the stadium would be a pitcher's paradise with their spacious dimensions and lack of wind that would allow more sets of pitches to maneuver more easily. It also had a state-of-the-art scoreboard called the Astrolite, which was the first animated scoreboard in sports stadium history, and it reportedly cost $2.1 million, which is around $20 million today in the 2024 economy. The multi-purpose stadium was designed to facilitate both football and uh, baseball with its nearly circular footprint and its movable lower seating area. And it ushered in an era of other fully domed stadiums such as the Superdome in New Orleans, the Pontiac Superdome in Detroit, uh, Hubert Humphrey Dome in Minnesota, the King Dome in Seattle, the RCO, RCA Hoosier Dome in Indy, and the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. On August 9, 1995, a scheduled NFL game between the Oilers and then San Diego Chargers had to be canceled due to the dilapidated conditions of the Astrodome. Oilers owner Bud Adams went on the offense. He demanded a new crib for his NFL club, but the city of Houston refused to fund it. By the end of the 1996 season, the Oilers packed their bags and rolled out, leaving the city of Houston without NFL football. The Astros, who of course shared the dome with the Oilers, began making overtures of their own displeasures with the current home accommodations, and with each summer game playing out in the now antiquated Astrodome, the Strohs were becoming more and more vulnerable to relocation. And here we are, folks, rolling into Union Station, Houston, Texas, the impetus and driving force behind the construction of this modern-day Coliseum. So, let me stick a pin in the Stroh's woes with the Astrodome right here and give you a little story, a little backstory about the location of this structure and why it is so important to the club, the city, and the fans. To do that, I gotta take you back in the deck to 1909 when the Westin Park was Houston's premier residential spot. That was the same year the Houston Belt and Terminal Railroad Company commissioned the new, des- new design of a new Union Station by New York City-based architect firm of Warren and Westmore. With an original estimated cost of $1 million, which is equivalent to $33 million in 2024, Union Station was constructed by the American Construction Company, although the final bill was five times more than the original estimate and it opened March 1st, 1911. At this time, Houston with 17 railways was the major hub of rail travel in the southern region of the United States. The station served as the main inner city passenger terminal for Houston for over seven decades after her conception. Passenger rail use declined greatly after World War II and the last regularly scheduled train, the Lone Star, moved its services to Houston's current Amtrak station on July 31st, 1974. Now, 
Upon this move, the building became only office spaces for Houston Bus and Transit. On November 10, 1977, the building was added under the protection of the National Register of Historic Places by the National Park Service. Okay, so let's take that pin out of the dying years of Acerdome chapter, stick it in right here to this Union Station backstory. And if I'm any kind of storytelling podcast or worth of salt, I should be able to link the two chapters together. So, with the Oilers giving the city of Houston the finger and now calling themselves the Tennessee Titans, there are serious concerns that the Astros may be searching for greener, not so astroturfy pastures themselves. Especially when North Virginia businessman William Collins begins to aggressively pursue the Astros, as well as the Montreal Expos, in a very transparent attempt to bring baseball to the nation's capital. Stroh's owner, Drake McLean, pledged to keep the team in Houston, and some public funds were made available for the construction of the new ball yard. And the idea for the public-slash-private drive for a downtown Houston ballpark was conceived sometime in 1996. That's when 14 leading Houston companies came together like Voltron and they formed the Houston Sports Facility Partnership. The partnership agreed to provide $35 million interest-free loan with no repayment due until 10 years of ballpark services. So in June of 1996, the University of Houston alum, BMC Software, and Padres owner John Moore, who had ambitions of securing the next Houston NFL team, they met with State Senator Mario Gallegos in regards to securing the future of a football-only Astrodome and a new baseball-only park in downtown Houston. Meanwhile, Harris County Judge Robert Eccles was piecing together his idea to build a new ballpark next to Astrodome and what was being called the Astro Domain. The ball club favored the Astro Domain location because they believed construction time would be shorter. And Eccles convinced then Mayor Bob Lanier that there was a lack of viability in a downtown location saying, I know these other cities have pulled off these miracles, but it simply won't work in Houston. If we're going to put the stadium someplace, let's stick with a proven place where the Astrodome has been uh, very successful, which is, you know, right outside of downtown Houston, about three miles or so. The plan was considered to be damn near finalized until the Houston Sports Facility Partnership was formed. And with their initial commitment, the Harris County Houston Sports Authority now had the financial support it needed to present a ballpark proposal to the taxpaying public in November of 1996. Voters would approve the $250 million project. In August of 1996, Houston's Union Station had also received a $2 million grant, around $4 million today, from the Texas Transportation Authority for a renovation in a totally different project. Plans for the stadium's location had drastically changed uh, from next door to the Astrodome 
to the Union Station site by September. And that was mostly in response to Enron Chairman Keith, Lane's, uh, Keith Lee's input and promise to substantially contribute to financing uh, the crib and it was placed downtown. So, it was at this time that the public storms converged an agreement between all the entities was brokered with the idea of a retractable roof confirmed for the new ballpark. A November referendum was planned for Harris County residents to approve the deal. The Harris County referendum that took place on November 5th, 1996 to help fund the ballpark's uh, uh, building uh, construction passed by the slimmest of margins, 51% to 49%. After passing on the local level, the 75th Texas Legislature, at the behest of Senator uh, John Whitmore, a bill is proposed and supported by five of the six Harris County Senators that would create the Harris County Houston Sports Authority. With Companion House Bill 92, authored by Houston Board Representative Kim Brimer, it was voted upon and adopted by both chambers, a state legislator, and the authorization of the sports authority was approved and signed into law by Texas Governor and former U.S. President George W. Bush on June 2nd, 1997. The Harris County Sports Authority agreed to assist in financing the new park as well as allow renovations for the Astrodome by allowing for special countywide taxation of rental cars, tickets, parking, and hotel use. The ballpark was to be named Enron Field after a $100 million 30-year naming rights deal was made with Enron Incorporated on April 7, 1999. And after the 2001 Enron scandal becomes public, the Astros parted ways with the now bankrupt Enron and the two sides grudgingly came to an agreement to end the partnership and rename the stadium in 2002. Okay, nerds. So let's check it out. I think this is where I'm going to break this week. I have a lot of fascinating stories still left on Minute Maid Park and we're going to hit on the Enron scandal at some point. Talk a little design and construction. Some of her alterations she made in her tenure as well as the myriad of other little nuggets of info you may not have known about this fantastic ballpark. I've never been there personally, but it plays very well on video tours. It looks amazing, and I can't wait to get after it when we return. I will never charge you cements for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscription bonus shows. When I do a bonus show, I give it to you for free, cements. All I ask is that you subscribe, share, rate, review, and please support the grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball pod. I told y'all all about Laparo's new product with his Cajun sauces now available. But let's not forget how my boy got started. And that's with this miracle Cajun crawfish steamed crab buffalo wing fish and bait hand cleaners. My boy Pod Squad's gonna tell you all about it. I don't do, you know, I don't just hog products to my audience. I only do products I believe in. Laparose hand cleaner products. No, 
small, smelly hands just sick freaks. So, looky, looky, my cement cookies. I'm going to take a quick spot break right here. Hook up my boy Gunner with his first segment, Treats Own, Rip on Tube or Two. And I'll be RB in a hot minute. See you at the crossroads on the dark side of the moon. In my shoes, walking sleep. In my youth, I pray to keep heaven sent hell away. No one sings like you anymore. This game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow, the bat on the ball and tearing on the base pass. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball. Keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that shift out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geek, executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290. To prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. 
Brian McCann, a perennial all-star in the National League, went over to the Yankees, was going to be part of the Yankee success, traded over here because of a Sanchez success. Here's a ground ball right side, could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions for the first time in franchise history. And we not only collect ball players, but we also collect the moments, the historical pop culture references, and in this week's case, the ballparks that have sparked our collective conscience when it comes to our national pastime. As this week, I've been laying down the history of Minute Maid Park. And before I stepped out for spots, I was giving you the genesis of the juice box. And I started out by telling you about two MLB stadiums in Houston that preceded Minute Maid Park and all of the financial and political maneuverings it took for the idea of the new baseball stadium to come to fruition. With the Houston Sports Authority and Texas legislators, not to mention the massive help and funding by Enron, the stadium is consistently becoming one step closer every day to realization. And early stadium sketches from the Kansas City-based stadium architectural firm HOK, now called Populous, using the title The Ballpark at Union Station, were released to the public on October 11, 1996. And that's when team president uh, Tal Smith gave his suggestions for the stadium, including the location of the flagpole and play in center field like old Yankees, and Tiger Stadium atop a 30 degree incline in a nod to the terrace and Crossley Field and Duffy's Cliff and Fenway's left field uh, and Fenway Park's left field long before the Green Monster. As well as the idea of a traditional dirt path from the mounds of home plate. While the dirt path was quickly vetoed by designers, the flagpole idea was adopted and became known as Towers Hill. Eventually, Towers Hill would be leveled out. The in-play flagpole taken down and the incline smoothed down to the regular playing surface, as well as bringing the center field wall in. And that happened in 2016. And Populous' determination, the most literal tie between Houston's past and its new ballpark, 
is a straight line to Union Station. The building is a symbol of the important role to the re- that the uh, railroad industry has played in the city's relatively short history, especially in the early 20th century. The whole being of Minute Maid Park's identity and appearances, it takes its cue from this period, much like Camden Yards and T-Mobile Park, you know, are tied to railroad traditions. The railroads uh, created Houston's flourishing trade and established a base of wealth and culture with an infrastructure of banks, water ports, and railheads. By 1910, the rail system constituted the city's largest industry. Union Station's lobby today and features the official Astros team store and a cafe and you can have these walked up or book tours offered year round and they usually begin in the station lobby. The second and third floors comprise the AT&T Conference Center which is an which is open 365 days a year, providing a wide array of meeting rooms that can provide businesses to organizations with state-of-the-art facilities. Nestled in different areas of the ballpark are additional meeting rooms and areas that provide the perfect atmosphere for a meeting or luncheon. The Astros Executive Compromise uh, comprise the third, fourth, and fifth floors. The sixth floor features the roof deck and clubhouse at Union Station, where private groups of up to 100 people can enjoy the game with an incredible skyline view of Houston. Now, the stadium has seen some of the highest highs and as the two world championship teams, and it's seen some of the lowest lows in 100 lost seasons and the embarrassing Enron debacle. The largest entrance into the juice boxes inside what was once Houston's Union Station. And that's on the left field side of the stadium and features a railway and homage to the site's legacy and tradition. The train moves along a 800 foot or a 240 meter track. It's laid out on the top length of the exterior wall beyond left field weighing almost 50,000 pounds. And it's driven by Bobby Vasquez, who goes by the name Bobby Dynamite, every time the Strohs take the field in the first inning, or if an Astro drops dull, or when the Astros win. Which, let's face it, it happens a lot in this last near decade. Old Bobby Dynamite and his General 440 replica train can be seen and heard atop the left field wall, moving along the track, using a pull cable device to make it functional. The engine's tender is loaded with giant oranges in reference to Minute Maid's most famous product, orange juice. Prior to Minute Maid's purchase of the stadium's naming rights, the tender was loaded with logs. Now, the train was designed by Unisystems, built by SMI and Hydraulics, which also provides transporters for the retractable roof. And owner Drayton McLean's office window is located in the old Union Station, located directly above the Crawford boxes. It's made of glass, and a sign below the window is marked 422 feet, 129 meters, from the dish, almost dead batters to break it. 
the Crawford Box. Uh, it's a section of seating in left field that runs parallel to Crawford Street outside the crib. And they run from section 100, which is technically foul territory, to section 104. It is a right-handed batter bull friendly, as it only sits 315 feet or 96 meters from home plate, one of the shortest porches in Major League Baseball. Home runs in the Crawford boxes must clear a 19-foot wall, 5.79 meters, which holds a hand-operated out-of-town scoreboard. The architects from Populous recommended early on that a retractable roof would be appropriate for the Houston climate. And since building the first retractable uh, roof ballpark, which was Skydome, which we covered here, their story, her construction, it's in the archives, Designers had crafted many new styles of retractable roofs. The roof at Minute Maid Park retracts completely off the top of the park to reveal the largest open area of any retractable roof built before or since. A total of 50,000 square feet of glass in the west wall that the roof gives fans a view of the Houston skyline even when the roof is completely closed. Games are typically played with the roof open in April and May and, occur- and occasionally during the October postseason games. Unisystem provided the ex- uh, technical expertise and know-how to design the best roof structure to Minute Maid Park. Mechanized roof panels, they open and close in 12 to 20 minutes. The roof moves back and forth an estimated 160 times a year, a distance of 14.6 miles, 23.5 kilometers. To cover the ballpark, steel panels roll in sequential order along a track on the east and west sides of the stadium. And when the roof is open, the southern and northern panels, each of which measures 573 feet by 120 feet, Weighs 1,905 metric tons. It rests at the north end below the large middle section measuring 589 feet by 242 feet and weighing 3,810 metric tons. Ford steel. Now these Ford steel wheels measuring 35 inches in diameter. They transport three roof panels. Each of the 140 wheels has its own braking mechanics, and 60 are equipped with electric motors. If the track is even slightly out of alignment, all the weight of a roof panel could come to rest on one wheel, causing severe structural damage. So, to prevent this, a polyurethane suspension pad that acts as a spring is attached above each wheel to distribute the roof's weight evenly. The low track, high track configuration and the roof's built-in glass wall it not only offers valuable efficiency but it also affords a panoramic, panoramic view of the surrounding landscape unlike any other roof ballpark. Featuring Platinum T.E. Papsalon from Georgia. The playing service covers 103,608 square feet or roughly three acres. The drainage and irrigation system includes 6,682 linear feet of PVC pipe, a total of 78 irrigation heads, 
help make the job for the head, head groundskeeper and his staff much easier. A total of 400 speakers, cabinets are scattered throughout the seating area, and almost a thousand long course concourses. The speakers are distributed throughout the park and have cabinets as close to the fans as possible. With visually redirected seats and baseball-only sightlines, Strohs fans are as close to the action as any fan in any, in any major league ballpark. Seats along the right field and foul line, uh, right field and left field foul lines are only five feet from the line, while the nearest spectator along the first and third baseline can be as close as 43 feet, 13 meters away from the action. The overall seating capacity of Minute Maid Park is 40,963. It features nine different seating areas, the dugout boxes, field boxes, Crawford boxes, bullpen boxes, club tiers one and two, terrace deck, mezzanine deck, Torchy's party deck, Budweiser brew house, and the upper deck. At each of the ballparks, four levels of main concourses. Uh, club level suite, level one, and upper concourses, they offer the Astros fan a uniquely different perspective. The seats are painted deep green to match the retro look and design of the ballpark. By sampling the various seating options, you can expect to always be on top of the action, panoramic views of the yard, and breathtaking, spectacular views of the Houston skyline. Hall of Fame Alley stretches along left field. The walkway features the Astros Hall of Fame, including inductee plaques and memorabilia for fans to take in. About halfway down the 800-foot alley is the fan favorite Phillips 66 home run porch and left center field that actually hovers over the field of play, and it features a classic throwback gasoline pump to keep track of the number of Astros dogs. Other premium seating areas around the ballpark include the Insperity Club and Lexus Field Club. The Insperity Club guests can enjoy the batter's view of the action and an all-exclusive first-class experience. And the Lexus Field Club is located on the field level underneath the batter's eye, pretty much out where your Don dropped his World Series dog and includes pre-game batting practice viewing. Now... The newest premium seating area is the Gallagher Club, located on the suite level down the left field line. The new renovations after a premium members-only space to provide one of the kind experience, including a plush lounge, in-club five-star weight service, gourmet grub, and a select number of premium season tickets in front of the club. The 2020 season also introduced the Mick Ultra Bar on the upper level on right field, serving as a destination bar, the perfect place to hang out with Stroh's Nation, enjoy the game, and the amazing views of the field, the ballpark, and the Houston landscape. The beginning of the millennium saw something the grand old game hadn't experienced since 1964, when they were then the National League Astros, playing on natural grass outdoors in the city of Houston. And while the clear skies and real grass was a welcome addition for fans, the Bayou City Seamheads also enjoy the 242-foot-high retractable dome. 
Fans approved the new ballpark overwhelmingly, resulting in a record of more than 3 million fans crashing Minute Maid Park turnstiles that first year. A veritable jewel in the crown of the majestic Houston skyline. Minute Maid Park has become the beloved home for their beloved Strohs, and it has ushered in a new era of Major League Sports in the city. The downtown ball yard continues a proud tradition of visionary innovation in stadium construction that is still to come after her rise. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to twist this up around a horn like 5-4-3 and put Minute Maid Park in the books with a backwards K. And look, like I said, I've never been to Minute Maid Park, but I got to tell you, I was really impressed after the research this week. It definitely looks like a stadium. I would love to watch a game at some point. A lot of history there. Got some railroad heritage, which I appreciate as someone who grew up in Cannon Yards. I really enjoyed myself, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy putting in the work and bringing you the info. I'll be up bright and early working on my game, trying to be better for you freaks next week. So, before I grip and rip with an epic bat flip, let me give you guys a quick wrap-up for this marvelous stadium engineering called Minute Maid Park. Now... Before I wrap up Minute Maid Park, I know drones are like a big deal these days. Hell, the snake got a couple of cells. So, if you're in the Houston area, set your coordinates for 29.6883 degrees north by 95.4086 degrees west. And let that song bitch hover right there. That's the site of Houston's first MLB stadium, Colt Stadium. Now, set your coordinates for 29 degrees. 41 feet, 6 inches degrees north, by 95 degrees, 24 feet, 28 inches west, and you will see the earthly remains of what is left of the Astrodome. And last but not least, set your drone coordinates, 29 degrees, 45 feet, 25 inches north, by 95 degrees, 21 feet, 20 inches west, and that is Minute Maid Park. It broke ground November 1st, 1997 at a cost of $250 million, which is about $450 million today. The architect was HOK Sports, now known as Populous. It's located at Union Station at Minute Maid Park, 501 Crawford Street, Suite 400, Houston, Texas, 77002. Left field is 300 feet. Left center field is 366 to 399 feet. Center field is 409 feet, right center field 370 feet, and right field 326. Its gross square footage is 28.97 acres, total square footage 1,263-240 square feet, and it stands 93 feet high. The first game was a preseason exhibition game between the Strohs and New York Yankees, with Houston winning 65 on March 30, 2000. The first official game was April 7, 2000, a 4-1 loss to the Phillies. Octavio Dotel was the first starting pitcher in stadium history and the first pitcher to take an L in that same game. Doug Henry became the first reliever to pitch in Minute Maid Park. Mickey Morandini hit the first sack fly in Minute Maid Park. The first Astro to pitch uh, the last game, ending of a game there, was Jay Powell. Doug Glamble, the Phillies, stole the first base in club history. Richard Hidalgo dropped the first dong in stadium history for the Strohs in the seventh. 
The next day, Mitch Maluski committed the first error at the park. Craig Biggio hit the first double, also stole the first bag. And Mike Maddox was the first Astro pitcher credited with a win by an Astros pitcher at Minute Maid Park when he came to the game in relief of Dwight Gooden. And who else but Billy Wagner came in to nail down the first save at the park. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, same heads of all ages. This is the story of Minute Maid Park. And again, I was pleasantly surprised about how much I learned and now how I really want to see a game at Minute Maid Park. I've been spoiled by open air and green grass all my life, and quite honestly, all my experiences watching baseball or football games inside of a dome, I've always come away less than impressed. But this Minute Maid Park, it looks like a whole different animal. And I'm really curious to check it out. And I think it's time to get you back to your loved ones, back in Terrapin Station where they've been patiently awaiting your return. So, with Minute Maid Park folded nicely, added to our collection... I can see the story getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror. I now turn my attention to I never say die baseball hydra, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in their place. Next week, freaks, we're probably going to do it. I mean, what kind of baseball collection can you possibly have Without the face of baseball of the 20th century. That's right, freaks. Next week, I'll be talking George Herman Ruth. Better known as the great Bambino, Babe Ruth. Should be kind of cool, right? Can't wait. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. I'm just going to keep coming through every Wednesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my dear friend, J.R. Richard. I miss you, buddy. I miss you so goddamn much. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored and unproductive AF, by all means, take those little rugrats outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shea Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo. And as an Oriole fan, I concur, by the way. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. All right, Gunner. Let's get them, these freaks back to Terrapin. Me and my felonious feline of a co-host, Charlie Guns. We're throwing up our Gunner Henderson's, y'all. That's our number twos. As in peace. See you next week with the babe. <laughs>